We can find our seats. We're going to get started here. Uh, I do want to just call your attention again to that family meeting. Um, uh, we, we, have, we had our elder uh, meeting last week, and one of the things we talked about is just making sure that um, we are keeping them concise uh, so that we're not w- making them last a real long, drawn-out time because nobody likes sitting through a long, drawn-out thing. So, you know, we've got a goal of, of you know, about 20 minutes plus some Q&A time. But if you would do us a favor, one of the things we want to do in just communicating to you as a body is we want to know what you want to hear. And so if you have a thought or a question ahead of time, um, there's a spot on our website where you can just uh, submit any questions you might have. And then when we, uh, we get to the family meeting, we can have those ahead of time. And maybe we can answer it before Q&A even comes up. But we just want to be transparent with you guys. We don't do things in secret. You know, that's not the goal of, of leadership. It's, uh, you know, there's some things that we got to take care of. And if you want to know about it, we want to be as transparent with you as we possibly can. And you're as much a part of this family as any elder is a part of this family. And so, uh, you know, there's not a, a special level of uh, information or, or whatever that might be. So um, just encourage you if you think through that. But uh, uh, good time to stay informed. So uh, we are continuing through the book of Mark. We are going to be finishing this chapter that we've been in for like the last two months. Uh, not today, though, next week. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, Mark chapter 14, we are continuing through the, uh, the trial of Jesus this morning. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 53 through verse uh, 60, uh, what did I say, 65. So if you would, open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 14. And once you have that, if you would stand with me, we'll read verses 53 through 65. And then we'll spend some time with the Lord and then spend some time in the Word. Starting at verse 53, it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands." Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, as we Uh, examine this trial that went on, 
that you would convict our hearts where we need conviction, that you would encourage us, and that you would just draw us closer to yourself. Father, I pray that as we seek your face, that you would reveal yourself to us as our Heavenly Father, loving and kind, compassionate, extending mercy to us. We thank you, we praise you, we rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as we have been continuing this story, this account, just to put things again in context, Jesus has spent some agonizing moments in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer, in the dark, by himself, even forsaken by the Father. He comes back, he wakes up his disciples who had fallen asleep on the job for the third time. He says, awake, the betrayer is at hand, and Judas comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Everyone, as they arrest Jesus, they bind him up and everyone begins to desert him and flee, even the naked kid. That was a funny part, but nobody laughed. Thank you, Mike. They drag Jesus off into the night and on his way to a trial. Imagine this trial for a moment. Imagine it. The creator of the universe standing before his own creation as they mock him, as they beat him, as they abuse him. And in a moment, imagine the restraint it would have taken. That the one who spoke into existence stars that make the earth puny. What he could have done. And yet he restrained himself. In this mockery of a trial. This story of this trial is our text this morning. It's what we want to look at starting in verse 53. All four Gospels tell us about this trial, but they give different aspects. The context here, probably around 2 a.m., early in the morning, there are actually two phases to this trial of Jesus. There is a, a ecclesiastical or a, a religious part of it, and there is a civil part of it. And we'll, we'll, we're not going to get into the civil this week, but um, each of these two sections actually have three separate trials. So if you, if you catch what I'm saying here, there's two trials that go on, one before the Jews and one before the Romans, and each of those two have three separate events within it. Okay, It's, it's helpful for me as I look at this text to understand the context of what's going on, and maybe it be helpful for you. Um, so before the, the Jews, the first uh, incident we're told in John, John gives us a little bit more detail. It actually says that the, the captain and the crowd first took Jesus to the house of Annas. Uh, and we'll talk more about him in a little bit. Um, but then, so in John 18, 13, it tells us that they first led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So they, they take him to the house of Annas, and then in, in John 18, 24, it tells us when they left there, they went to Caiaphas's house. He was the high priest, the son-in-law of Annas. And then finally, Luke tells us, Luke is the only one that mentions it to us, that after they left Caiaphas' house, they actually go to the temple where they trial Jesus at the Sanhedrin. And there's a reason for that. And their goal in all of this is to find Jesus guilty of blasphemy so that they can put him to death. 
It's important to understand that context. In fact, we're told in Scripture that their purpose was to find him guilty of blasphemy so they could put him to death. However, they don't have the authority to do that. A fascinating thing, uh, uh, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but in, in Genesis chapter 49, uh, 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 Israel, Jacob, is blessing his children. And he gets to Judah and he says to Judah, you shall have the right of the scepter, the right to rule until Shiloh comes in this blessing. And Shiloh is another uh, name in the Hebrew for the Messiah, the Savior. And so what's interesting is the Jews actually in A.D. about 2 to 4... Uh, the Romans came in and said, you no longer have the right to execute people. And they removed that authority from the Jewish people. And the Jewish leaders literally said, you have violated the Holy Scriptures because you have taken the right to rule from us. And what they didn't know is that what is fascinating to me is that Jesus was born right around then. And so the right to rule had been removed because the Messiah had come. Fascinating, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, uh, but they needed the, the civil government because they had no authority for execution. So in this trial, the charges are different. They're trying to trial Jesus, and they actually go from uh, first to Pilate's house in the courts of Pilate. He finds nothing wrong, so they send him off as they're trying to find Jesus guilty in, in the civil case of sedition or treason. So they send him to Pilate after he's left the temple courts, and Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him, so he ships him off to Herod. Herod uh, wants to be entertained, and he asks Jesus to perform miracles. Jesus doesn't uh, 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 fulfill that, and so he's kind of bored with him, so he says, I don't want anything to do with him, so he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, because of the force of the crowd, gives in and offers to have Jesus executed. That's context. It's a lot of context, but it's, I think, really important that we understand as we walk into this, because here we enter into the text, and this text is, a, is a, simply an amazing text. Mark uses what we would call a historic present tense writing. Okay, So all that means is that uh, you think of somebody who might be a journalist. They write it uh, to describe the scene. Mark is more like a photographer. He's telling you in present tense historical events so that you can see it with your eyes as if you're there. It's really incredible. That's the writing of Mark. He wants us to be in the scene. He wants us to see it. He wants us to experience it. And so Mark actually starts where in our text we had mentioned there are three different parts of the, the Jewish trial. Mark is skipping the house of Annas and is going straight to the house of Caiaphas. Okay, So that's the context here. And that leads us into verse 53. And it starts out by saying, And they led Jesus to the high priest, to Caiaphas' house. And the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Notice what it says. It says they led Jesus. By the way, anytime we are leading Jesus, it ain't going to be a good thing. We are to be followers. We are sheep and he is the shepherd. Almost all problems in life, if you have a problem in your life, I can about guarantee it's because you are trying to lead Jesus and not follow Jesus. And we are not letting Jesus be the shepherd. When we trust the Lord and follow his leading, we are always in the best possible position. 
John tells us they bound him and they led him away to Annas first. We mentioned that. But I want us to understand who Annas is in order to get the context of what's going on. Annas, uh, remember, we said we, Mark skips Annas' house, but Annas is the father-in-law. He was officially the high priest in Jerusalem from about A.D. 6 to A.D. 13. And, and kind of some boring historical things, but if you understand them and you wrap them up and you put them in context, I think it really helps. He was actually removed from office by the Romans. And he was replaced by Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And Caiaphas, he was only ever a puppet. He was only ever a puppet of Annas because Annas had, had uh, authority in the minds of the Jewish people. And Annas, he was a scoundrel. He was a dirty, rotten, thieving scoundrel. In fact, the Talmud actually condemns the house of Annas because of how corrupt and greedy his family was. Annas was actually the one who came up with the idea of skimming off the top of, of the sales that were going on in the temple courts. So, so when Jesus comes in and, and uh, the beginning of his ministry, a lot of people don't realize that Jesus actually cleared the temple twice. At the beginning of his ministry, he comes in and he clears out the temple courts. He, he throws out those who are selling doves and, and he says, my father's house should be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. The thief was Annas because what Annas was doing was making a requirement that if you wanted to uh, have sacrifices that would be pure and holy and acceptable to be offered, then you could buy them here in the temple court. And by the way, they would cost double what they would cost outside. And by the way, you can't use a Roman coin to get these to purchase these items, so you would have to exchange it for the temple coin. And the exchange rates inside, if you've ever gone to a museum or, or someplace and or to an airport to, to exchange currency, it's always way more expensive when it's a, a desperate need when you have to do it. The convenience factor. I always love that. Convenient way to charge more, right? Convenience factor. Well, they would come in and you'd have to exchange to get their coins so that you could do it and the cost was even more. And guess who's pocketing all the profits from this? Annas the high priest. And when Jesus comes in and turns everything upside down, he kicks out, guess who suffers the financial loss? Annas. Guess who's extremely bitter at Jesus for the rest of his life? Annas. Annas never cares about truth in regards to this trial of Jesus. All he cares about is revenge. So Mark skips the house of Annas, and he goes right into the night trial at the house of Caiaphas. And, and so probably about 2 a.m., we're told in verse 54 that Peter follows him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, and he was sitting with the, the guards and warming himself at the fire. It was a cold night. In the middle of the night, sometime probably in March or April. But I found it fascinating. The first verse, it tells us they led Jesus. And now we're told that Peter followed him at a distance. Not only can you not lead Jesus, but you shouldn't follow him at a distance. It never works out well. You can't follow him at a distance. Too many times Christians are trying to follow Jesus at a distance so that they aren't too closely associated with Jesus. Next week, we'll look into Peter. We'll come back to him. But it's a significant fact that Peter was there because if you remember from the very beginning, we've said that, that Peter is most likely the one who is sharing with Mark because Mark was not an eyewitness to most of these events. So Peter is sharing with Mark what to write 
And, and as he tells us the story, what's significant here is that Peter was there and he witnessed it. Peter was also in the courtyard of Annas. It tells us that he walked into the courtyard of Annas thanks to John, the other disciple, who knew the family of the high priest. And, and it actually tells us in, in John's account that, that John went and talked to the, the security guard at the gate and got Peter in. And so they're in there warming themselves by a fire there. And then it tells us again that when they go to Caiaphas' house, he walks into the courtyard. He's warming himself at a fire. What's significance for us? Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. 58, it tells us Peter was there and he saw it to the end. And thankfully, because of that, we have all this recorded for us. Peter tells us firsthand, in fact, in Peter's own epistle, he tells us how Christ behaved that night. He was there and he saw it. What I want us to understand is not just how this trial went about, but how significant it was. The Sanhedrin in history has been known for its rules and regulations as one of the most just and correct judicial legislative systems in history. They, the Jewish people in particular, value human life so much that when it comes to a trial that requires a death sentence, they had a very specific list of rules that had to be followed in order to make sure that they don't make a mistake. And, and so I want to walk through some of those really quick with you. Uh, number one, a, a trial in, in the Sanhedrin could never happen at night. It had to wait until daytime so that they could be thinking in their right minds so that they could admit or just administered justice correctly. It needed to be held where they met, which was in the temple courts. Hence the reason after they met at Caiaphas's house, in the daytime, they would go to the temple courts to have their trial. In regards to a possible death sentence, I found this interesting. The first witnesses had to always be for the defense and the right to acquit and not condemn. So in a death sentence trial, the first witnesses always had to be for the defense to prove that he was innocent. They had to find those witnesses first because life was so valuable. They, they wanted to find witnesses to testify to, to innocence. And if they found witnesses against, they needed to have a minimum of two to three in order to condemn there were 71 members of the Sanhedrin, and a death sentence, this is, this is very unique, a death sentence could not be administered with a unanimous vote. Because they viewed that a unanimous vote was a vote without mercy. If everybody said he's guilty, then there's no mercy there, and so he had to be acquitted. Sounds kind of odd to me, but it was their mindset. That if it was so overwhelmingly convincing that there's no mercy in that, and so there's got to be some sort of uh, working. And yet we'll find in this text that they all found him guilty. In verse 64, it tells us they all found him guilty. Yet in Luke, we're told of men named Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In Luke chapter 26, it tells us that they did not consent to the death of Jesus. They did not consent to this guilty verdict. So either they weren't present, which would have been a violation, or they were just outright ignored. This trial was so illegal in their own court system. If found guilty and condemned, they couldn't be executed on the very same day. 
Yet that morning when they found him guilty, they paraded him around until they could get a death sentence and then they sent him to die. They needed to go home and sleep on it and pray about it to make sure that they were correct. And then on the way to the, the, the execution, if somebody in the crowd said, this man is innocent and I have proof, the whole trial had to be redone. And I can think of countless times where people from the crowd shouted various things. Such a value of life among the Jews and such caution in the procedure to make sure they were absolutely sure. Yet this trial violated all the rules because Annas and Caiaphas were so corrupt. Verse 56 tells us the goal in their trial, for many bore witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and, and, and uh, uh, bore false witness against him. We heard him say their goal was a guilty verdict of blasphemy. They sought testimony to condemn, and their testimony that they found uh, was a couple of guys who had heard, so they were ear witnesses, not eyewitnesses. They had heard, and they said uh, what they had heard was this. Notice what it says. It says, uh, uh, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. What's interesting is that's not even what Jesus said. It comes from when Jesus came in and he uh, uh, cleared out the temple courts. Jesus didn't say, if I destroy it. He says, if you destroy it. And, and I find it interesting that, uh, that this, this whole scene must have dug very deep in the heart of Annas. Because if you look in, in Acts at the uh, trial of Stephen, the, the sermon that Stephen preaches, it tells us that the high priest at that time in Acts chapter 6 was actually Annas again. And it tells us in Acts chapter 6 uh, it says in verses 11 through 14, they secretly instigated men. Does this sound familiar? They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. This is talking about Stephen. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're still talking about this very thing that Jesus supposedly said months down the road. It dug deep in the heart of Annas. You can, you can see how bitter he was about Jesus taking away his prophet scheme. He's bitter at the losses Jesus had caused him. So they come up with these, these guys, and I find it interesting that not even their false testimony would agree with each other. Uh, and then Annas, or uh, Caiaphas, I'm sorry, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, which was read for us earlier, it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Peter, like I had mentioned earlier, he witnessed this whole thing. He says, for this, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, what glory is there if you uh, get what you deserve when you're suffering for doing wrong? But we have an example for when you are suffering for for, uh, what you don't deserve. And that's Jesus who, when he was reviled, when he was cursed, when he was spit upon, he didn't respond. He restrained himself. This is the example. It's remarkable. He took it all. For one reason, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the glory set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endures it. Why? For us. Finally, Caiaphas in verse 61, he says, uh, but he remained silent, meaning Jesus made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And in Matthew chapter 26, it tells us that he says to him, I adjure you, which is a divine oath. And according to the law, if you were committed to a divine oath, you must speak. It requires an answer. So Jesus says, in the way he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to him and asked uh, who are you searching for, Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am. And so here Jesus says, ego a me. I am. I am. And guess what? You shall see the Son of Man coming in glory, riding upon the clouds. The high priest tears his clothes, his garments, a, a very... Uh, Not just traditional, but it was a a legal thing that if there was blasphemy, you would tear your clothes in outrage. He tears his clothes, and he says, we don't need any more. But what's sad is they didn't hear blasphemy. They heard truth. They didn't hear blasphemy. They heard truth. They accused him of blasphemy for speaking the truth. This is the same thing that the world does today. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the reality that Jesus, who is very clear that he is the way, the only way, he is the life, the only life, he is decisive. And at the name of Jesus, there is no other name by which a person can be saved. It is a decisive, definitive, only truth. And the world doesn't want to hear it. And we're told in the text that at the very hearing of this, that the high priest tears his clothes and he says, we don't need any more. What is your decision? They all condemn him as deserving death. And then verse 65, it tells us, and some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And thus the brutal battering of Jesus to the point where the the prophecy in Isaiah says that he would be so marred 
so disfigured from his beatings he wouldn't even be recognized as a human would begin. They spit on him. God in the flesh. It wasn't even necessary for Jesus to go through this in order to forgive and to, to buy back redemption for humanity. He needed to pour out his blood, but he didn't need to go through the abuse. But he did. There's nothing more derogatory an act than to be spit upon. Can you imagine that? Being spit upon and the restraint, the amount of control, the creator of the universe would have had to hold himself back. And they covered his face and they beat him with, with uh, rods and with whips and all kinds of things. And they would say, who prophesied, prophesy who hit you? And let me tell you, Jesus knew who it was that hit him. And he knows still to this day. And he allowed it. Not just allowed it, we are told, he gave himself to it. And I think the most aggravating thing in this to me is that it came from the religious leaders. This was the people that were trying to connect people to God. And how oftentimes can this happen in the church when our testimony is not to the truth? What a mockery of a trial. What, a, what a, a, an absolute horrific moment for humanity that this is how the Son of God, that God came, Emmanuel, in the flesh, dwelt among us, did nothing but good things for 33 years of his life, healed people, uh, loved people, cared for people, raised the dead to life, did all these amazing things. And this is the culmination of humanity's response to that. It's flat out not just embarrassing, it is the most egregious moment of human history. And it is easy for me, and I've talked to so many people over the last few weeks, it's easy for me to look back on, on the Old Testament, I mean on the New Testament, and be like, man, why didn't these Pharisees and Sadducees and, and these scribes, why didn't they see that he was the Messiah. I mean, it's so obvious from Scripture. When you look back in the Old Testament, it was so obvious he's fulfilling all these prophecies. How could they not see it? I mean, it's so obvious. These guys were morons. They're not morons. They were students of the Word, and yet they missed it. There's lessons in that. And I think there will be some day when we get to glory and we look back on the events of our life and we're going to be like, how did I not see what God was doing in my life at that very moment? It was so obvious now when I look back on it. I mean, how many times can we do that in our life right now where we look back 10 years ago and we're like, man, duh, if I would have only recognized what he was doing, it was so obvious. There's two main applications I want us to get from this text. Number one, it is easy to miss truth when we truly don't want to hear it or see it. It's very easy. It was standing in their face that very night. And how many times have I failed to see the truth or hear his voice 
when it confronts me right to my face. One of the things that I hate most about myself is I get super defensive when I have something presented to me because I am always, I am always right, okay? You need to understand that. I am always right. And so when you come to me to confront me with sin in my life or an issue in my life, uh, you know what my first response is always going to be? Yeah, but. Or you don't understand. Or that's not true. Or whatever it is. I, I hate that. I wish I could just be like Jesus and keep my mouth shut. But you know why I don't? Because I don't like to be proved wrong and I don't like sometimes when truth confronts me. How many times has Jesus confronted me with truth and it didn't fit my agenda so I ignore it or disregard it? How many times have I heard from the lips of Jesus when he tells the, the, the chief priests in Luke, if I told you, you would not believe me. Pilate is going to ask Jesus very shortly, what is truth? But you know what the text tells us? That as soon as he asks, what is truth? He walks away because he doesn't want to hear the answer. Because so many times the truth confronts our sin. And it's difficult. I am thankful that I have brothers in my life who are willing to come up to me and say, you know what, that's not right. And are willing to risk their relationship with me for that. Because if we don't do that, what are we? Because our desire ought to be the same desire that Jesus has, reconciliation and redemption. And we only do that when we speak truth into people. And here these men sat, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They had the very face of God standing before them. And they saw the truth and they totally ignored it. Why? Because it was an affront to their corruption. And it was an affront to their sin. And it was an affront to their agenda. And so they made a mockery of their judicial system and came down with a guilty verdict that was a complete and utter lie. It's easy to miss truth when we truly don't want to see it or hear it. Second, Christianity is about relationship and not religion. It was the religious who did this. It was the religious people that did this, the ones who kept the law, the ones that, that obeyed and did all the right things according to their law. And, and here's Jesus. He walks in and he came knowing he would suffer and die, but he did it anyway because he wanted reconciliation and restoration of relationships. He exposed himself to it because he wanted restoration and reconciliation. He wanted redemption. This is the reality, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh because he knew that in humanity there was brokenness because of sin, that, that a holy God could not be in the very presence of humanity, that because of Adam and Eve and the, the, the sin that they had passed on from generation to generation, and, and because we are told in Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there was a violation of God's holiness, and so every single human has ever tried to 
redeem and restore that relationship has failed utterly. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who say, I just can't figure this out. I can't do it. I'm at a place where I'm in my utter depths of despair because I don't know how to fix this problem I have in my life. That is the best place you could be. Because then you'll start to turn to the one person who can do something about it. The one person who said, you know what? Humanity's going to spit on me. They're going to rip the hairs of my beard out and then they're going to pierce nails through my hands and they're going to crucify me until I can't breathe anymore and I'm going to give up my spirit for them because I love them. If we can see that and recognize that that's the reality that Jesus went through all this and he had every right to say, just stop. You are fools, and I am the creator, and let me show you how I am the creator. He could have in a moment called down, as he told Peter, 12 legions of angels and put an end to all of it and wiped out all of humanity, yet he didn't do that. It said he kept his mouth shut, and he took it because he loved us. If that was his goal and what he was willing to do for accomplishing it, How can we ever say that relationship, fill in the blank, isn't worth trying to fix it? We all have broken relationships with somebody. Listen, I know most of you that I know that there's got to be a broken relationship in your life. And let me tell you, based on what I read from Jesus and his actions, there is no relationship that isn't worth the effort to try and redeem. There's nobody that has violated or bruised you or hurt you so bad because they killed him and he willingly went through it to redeem. He endured all this for us because he loves us so much. He desires a real relationship with you. If you are sitting here today and you don't know what that is, if you don't have the knowledge and understanding of a relationship with Jesus, don't walk out of here without understanding this very fact that Jesus came to suffer at the hands of sinful people so that he might die on a cross, so that his blood would be poured out, so that his body would be broken to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that we can look and say, the sin that I have committed deserves eternal punishment, and Jesus took it on my behalf, and I will receive that, and I will praise God for it, and I will trust in that as my only hope of reconciliation. And you know what he has promised in his word that those who put their hope in that today he gives you the right to be called his children behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God and so now we are right now Because why? He went through all this because he desires a relationship. He doesn't want to see you once a week in church. That's not a relationship. If, if the extent of your Christianity is I go to church once a week, I tithe, I, I share with other people, whatever it might be, if that's the extent and understanding of your relationship with the Lord, that is no relationship at all. Brothers and sisters, I can preach the word to you. I can share with you my understanding of the word. I can share with you what the Lord has convicted me about in this. But if you aren't going home and spending time with the one who endured being spit upon and beaten and bruised for you, that is not a relationship. 
He wants to be with you at all time at the cost of his own life. Jesus on trial. Truth made known, truth presented and yet ignored. And he desires a relationship with you. Stephen and the rest of the worship team are going to come up. And they're going to lead us in worship. And when they do, they are leading us into praise of the one who has been praised since the beginning of creation and before, as Stephen shared, and till the end of time. Because he is worthy of praise. Because he has endured this on our behalf. Not so that when he was done, he could get some sort of credit for it. He doesn't need credit. He already has all credit. He did it out of love. And he did it out of a desire for redemption and restoration of relationships with you. Let us consider that as we offer worship and praise to him who is wholly worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, as we consider what Jesus endured, not just on the cross, but in the moments leading up, feeling alone and isolated, his friends abandoning him, feeling forsaken by the Father, when he cried out on the cross in despair, Lama, Lama, Eloi, Sabachnia, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not for a moment did he say to himself, I don't want to do this, because he desired to obey the Father. And in that, he desired to restore and redeem those who had come to him. And Father, for that, we give you worship and praise because you are worthy and you have loved us so much that we can be called your children. And Father, I pray for us today that if there are things in our life that are hindering us from a deep relationship with you, Father, I pray that we could cast those aside and recognize that you were willing to be spat upon in order to get close to us. And you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. And so, Father, we come to you through the Son, through his new and living way that he has made. Through the curtain, his body. And by his blood poured out for a new covenant and a new testament in redemption. We thank you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.